Yeah, so this message is different than a normal uh, sermon. We're not expositing a, a bit of scripture. This is more of a, more of a seminar or a, a teaching lecture, but I hope it is helpful to you. This is in our, our Deep Questions series. Previously, we did a message about who decided what books are in our Bible. And another title for that message could have been, Do We Have the Right Books in Our Bible? Now this message is basically, do we have the right words in our Bible? Because you could have the right books and say, okay, we have Romans, we have Matthew, all these books, but have the words, have the text, have the letters, have they been changed over the years? Do the texts that we have now faithfully match what was originally written by the apostles and the prophets? So whereas the previous message dealt with what's called the the canon of Scripture, uh, this message will deal with what's called the transmission of the text. And we're going to make this part one of two. I was originally asked a question, specifically dealing with a question about the King James Version, and people asking, don't the versions besides the King James, people are are saying that they, they delete, they remove verses from it. And maybe you've heard that. And I realize in order to answer that question, we need to do this one first to lay some of the groundwork. And it's been something I've been wanting to talk to for a while. So because I had some requests, this one got bumped to the front of the queue because I'm here to respond to you and give you what you need. So you may hear some uh, questions from time to time. And maybe you've seen these online. Maybe you've heard skeptics say these things. That isn't the Bible just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? Isn't it like the, it's like the product of the telephone game? You play that as a kid and you whisper something and they pass it on down the line and by the end it's just a garbled mess and you can't trust that. There are skeptics that say there's more variants, more changes than, and problems and errors than there are verses. So we're going to deal with some honest things first. And first, honestly, I need to get you worried a little bit okay, so that you are able, so that we're able to... Uh, understand what the problems are, so then we can talk about the, the solutions to these. So I'm going to start with a few. I think these are just uh, questions, and just these are the facts on the ground that we have to deal with, okay, when we think about the transmission of the text. Question, are only the originals, and the originals are called autographs, the autographs, are they the only things guaranteed to be without error, or are the copies guaranteed also to be without error. And I'm going to tell you the answer to this, at least in the right way that I'm saying it, is actually it's just the autographs. The original writings are the ones that were guaranteed to be without error. Okay? So there could be copies that are made, and there's nothing that God has said that somebody couldn't try to copy the Scripture and copy it wrong or add an error, add a mistake into it. Now, just to put your mind at ease, we're going to say that the copies, what we have now is inerrant to the extent that it reflects the original writings. And by the end, you're going to see what I think about that. Uh, but God has never promised that he, to keep typos from happening as scripture was copied. That's what I'm saying with this. So do we, next question, do we have what are called the autographs, the original? Do we have the original uh, you know, parchments or you know, sheets of uh, paper or whatever material it was that Paul sat down and, and wrote Romans, that uh, John wrote the Gospel of John? And the answer to that question is no. 
And this is where a lot of skeptics will say, well, how, what does inerrancy even matter if it only applies to the originals and we don't have them? Another question, again, being honest at the beginning, do we have any perfect copies? You know, there might be some that have typos, but do we have at least, you know, a few or a lot that are, are just ancient, you know, perfect copies that are made? And the answer is no. At least probably not. That probably in all of them, uh, there are some little, at least typos or different things that have crept in. So again, some of these, then the um, questions that you'll hear from skeptics have to do with questions like these. If all we have are copies of copies, then what we have is the result of the telephone game. We're going to deal with that when we get to point two. Uh, There's an author, uh, Bart Ehrman, and he's written many books that sell hundreds of thousands of copies. Uh, Atheists love this guy. He claims that he was once a, a Christian and uh, that he has uh, you know, abandoned that faith. And he writes all these books uh, just promoting skepticism. He's a book, Misquoting Jesus. And in that book, and in many of the debates and appearances that he has, uh, he will say that there are more variants. That's a word I'm going to use a lot. And th- I need to use some of these technical terms, but I'm going to tell you what they mean. So variant is like a difference in the different copies of Scripture. We have these ancient manuscripts And if one makes a typo or a slight change, that's a variation or what they call a variant. And what he likes to say is that we have more variants than than there are words in the New Testament, which might be technically true. Depending on how you count it, there might be 200,000 or he says 400,000 variants in all the different manuscripts that are there. So we have to ask, are these concerning things? Do we throw away our faith because of this? And for all we know, the original documents were changed to fit somebody's agenda. Back when the, the Da Vinci Code novels were out, that was a big thing. And people have said that in the past too, that you know, somebody is, they've it tweaked scripture, they've changed it to fit certain political or theological agendas. And maybe Constantine at the time had all the scriptures you know, changed to what he wanted it to say. So these are some of the questions. These are some of the things that sometimes do worry and rock people. Uh, but as we look at this, and this is just going to be a brief overview, I hope that you will find that your faith in Scripture can be strengthened tremendously because of the actual truth when we actually look at it and we can start to understand it. So the thesis that I want to give to you is that the text of the Bible has been accurately transmitted to us. Okay, so what was originally written down by the original writers, even though that doesn't exist, it has been copied accurately to us. So that at the end of the day, what we have in Scripture that is a, is a very, very reliable record of what was originally written. And the truth is, you don't have to have the original uh, writings for it to carry that authority it's not the pen on paper that makes it. It's the, it's the truth of the Word of God. Whether it's copied, whether it's proclaimed, that it is uh, in that authority. So we do have copies that are actually transmitted to us. So I'm going to give you three basic uh, reasons, and we're going to dive into these. And so the first kind of reason that we're going to think about is that 
the manuscripts that we have are vastly greater in number and closer in time to the originals than really all other ancient writings. There are a lot of writings from the ancient world uh, that we have, and we know ancient history and different things. And we're going to compare how many we have, but also the gap in time between when they were written and the oldest copies that, that someone has. And we see there's a huge difference. It's an amazing uh, thing that we have how much of a uh, manuscript witness there is for the, uh, we're going to focus primarily on the New Testament writings. And of course, you realize if you, if you have some old books in your home, you realize what happens to old books. And now there's you know, special treatments to make them last longer, but it doesn't take long before a, a book is just falling apart. I mean, the Declaration of Independence is, you know, well protected and under glass and all this because they don't want the thing just deteriorating. And maybe you've been in libraries where there's books that really aren't all that old, you know, when you think of history that are just falling apart. So you think in the ancient world and you think of uh, their, you know, uh, different writing materials that they had and how fragile they were and uh, why they didn't last. And it's, it's amazing that some of these things have lasted uh, at all. So... One of the things we need to realize with this is that we have around 5,800 handwritten copies of the Greek New Testament. And they catalog these, they um, document these and count them. I haven't been able to narrow down, like the the number keeps changing. And if it's not 5,800 yet, it's very close to that. Uh, so I know it was 5,700 and something for a while, and they keep discovering more here and there, sometimes full manuscripts in the entire Bible. Sometimes they're just little papyrus fragments, uh, but they catalog these. This is, we're going to see, it's far more than any ancient manuscript. And what we're talking about here is uh, for the New Testament, uh, they were written, handwritten, because, you know, we're so used to... Uh, you know, the printing press, and we're so used to the internet and, and being able to type things and reproduce things so easily. Uh, but back then, you know, this process, uh, they had to handwrite everything. And it was a difficult, time-consuming thing to do. Uh, and so this is counting the number that are in Greek specifically. We're going to see there's other, if you add to this different translations, the number is way higher it's maybe around twenty to 25,000 when you add in Latin, Coptic, and all the different translations. Uh, but it's, it's really a, a huge number. And they count this before the, basically before the printing press. So, and the time gap between the original writings and the earliest existing copies is far less than, the other, than all other ancient manuscripts. So again, think of when the ancient manuscript was written and how far back we go. Because one thing you might, when we talk about this, you might be expecting, well, maybe we have some that are just, you know, uh, they're a year later. And we're going to realize that's actually pretty unrealistic. The gap that we're going to see for most of these ancient manuscripts is oftentimes hundreds of years between when it was originally written and the oldest copies that we have of that. So I'll give you a chart. This is in your notes as well. And these are some commonly accepted dates. Some of these are approximate dates, obviously. Uh, But you have Homer's Iliad, 
written about 800 B.C., and the, basically the earliest copies we have that are from 400. So this is one of the better ones, actually. So you have a gap there of like 400 years. So scholars that deal with Homer you know, think that's, that's pretty reliable. It's only 400 years. I mean, that's still quite a bit. Uh, and this, according to the research I looked at for this, some 643 copies. Uh, but that's rare. Some of these other works that historians rely upon and view as, as good, sound history... You look at uh, the number of surviving manuscripts there. Uh, Heroditus, his history, written about 480 to 425 B.C., somewhere like that. The copies that we have only go back to about uh, 900 years after the time of Christ. So that's a gap of over 1,350 years approximately. And there's only about eight of those that are in existence. Uh, for Plato, the great Greek philosopher. People study all the time any of his works, uh, probably written about 40 BC, and the earliest copies that we have about, again, about 900 after Christ. Again, a gap of about 1,300 years and maybe like seven copies. So you could look at these for some of these other works, but I want you to compare this to what we have for the New Testament. And the New Testament is written approximately between 50 and 90, uh, 80, 50, and 90, and uh, so shortly after uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, um, John was probably the last author, wrote the book of Revelation in uh, about 80, 90, and some of the earliest copies that we could look at for this, it depends on what we're talking. 80, about 125, it goes back that early, even for like little fragments, and we see this is an amazing thing. Um, and it gives you about approximately maybe 50 years, maybe less than that, depending when you date. Uh, we're going to talk about P52, the oldest little fragment that we have, that there are uh, complete books from about 8200, maybe about 100 years after. Uh, most of the New Testament, about 250, and a complete New Testament dating from approximately 325 the earliest complete New Testament we have is probably Codex Vaticanus, currently housed in the, the Vatican Library. And that's the oldest complete New Testament that we have that's, that's printed. We have scraps, we have parts, uh, and we have quotes all over the place. Uh, but that's the one that goes back the furthest. But if we think, well, that's kind of a big gap, we have to compare it to what is standard with the other historical sources. And realize we have way more manuscripts for the New Testament than these other historical documents that scholars would normally rely upon and, and view as historical as well. And the gap in time for the New Testament is incredibly smaller. Again, we have to be realistic about uh, the, the life expectancy of these documents in the ancient world. Uh, they, would, they would get destroyed. They would wear out with use. Uh, if there was any type of humidity, you know what that does to things. As for some of the oldest documents that have been found, have been found in, in very dry places where it's been preserved because it's kind of a rare thing for that to happen. You know, sometimes there are fires. Sometimes things just got uh, recycled or thrown out. Sometimes uh, as persecution came, you know, books or libraries would be just uh, burned or wiped out. So it is an amazing thing that we have uh, this many. Now, to be honest... 
most of the uh, manuscripts that we have are not from, from real, real close. Most of them are from later during the Middle Ages. And maybe some of them would look something like this. This is a, uh, just a sample of a later kind of document. And later on, scribes would write this and uh, they would even decorate it. This is a format called a, a codex, uh, which is like a, a, basically to us a book. And it's written in a kind of a lowercase cursive font called minuscule. They can date some of these things by the type of writing that they used. And so a lot of these are from the Middle Ages, and a lot of them from, uh, especially in uh, the Byzantine Empire. You know, it's, uh, it, it, Constantinople, it's Istanbul now, it was Constantinople, because they kept speaking Greek there for a long time. And again, we'll talk about that more at the next message in two weeks as well, because that's going to tie into things that we're going to be talking about. Uh, so this is just a, a sample of one of these ancient manuscripts. Uh, but I want to show you a few others. And it, it's, especially where we are now with technology, it's really cool that, I mean, you can go online and you can look at some of these manuscripts. Things that before, I mean, you could be a top scholar and not even uh, be allowed access to look at some of these things because they had to be so preserved and taken care of and now they've been digitized and made available. So one of the oldest documents that we have of a complete Bible is Codex Sinaiticus. And this is an actual uh, picture of a page from Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, this happens to be from Romans chapter 3. And Codex Sinaiticus uh, some of it uh, was lost, especially some of the beginning fragments. Uh, but it, it is pretty amazing. As I say here, as it survives today, it, there's about 400 large pages made from animal skin. That type of uh, parchment is called, well, that's not parchment, that type of writing material is called vellum. And so it kind of lasted longer than some of the other stuff that had been used. And it contains all of the New Testament and a lot of the Greek version of the Old Testament which is called the Septuagint. And that was originally written in Hebrew, but it got translated into Greek, and that's what there is in this, uh, in this codex. If you're wondering what codex means, again, I said it means, it means book. So this is something, it's not the scrolls, like the Jews use scrolls, but really early on, the Christians developed what was called the codex, which is basically the, a book format. And it's really interesting because historically, uh, they've um, realized that Christians specifically basically developed the book as a book bound like we think of it instead of scrolls. And a big reason for this, and I think this is a really likely hypothesis, is because they wanted a way that they could bind the entire canon of Scripture, everything from Genesis to Revelation, in like one big volume to show that this was a united work and it was all together. And so basically, 100 years before this type of uh, book or codex took off in the rest of the world, Christians were using this to, to bind their copies of Scripture together. So Codex Sinaiticus, it was discovered, well, Sinaiticus in uh, the Sinai Peninsula in uh, a monastery out there, uh, St. Catherine's Monastery by this guy, Constantine von Tischendorf. And it was discovered in 1844, so not that long ago, really. But they discovered it, and they were able 
to, they use different techniques to date it. Part of it is what was the writing material? What was the writing style? What was the ink? They have all these different things that they look at to come up with dates. And it's pretty much agreed that this is about from the mid 300s, which again, that is uh, historically speaking, really, really, really early. It's an amazing thing. One of the things to look at is you look at this. I'll zoom in so you can see this a little bit more. Shows a different type of writing style. Uh, this is um, either called uh, majuscule or unseal writing. It's, it's all capital letters. And that's how they did it at that time. It's all capital letters. And also notice there's no spaces between the words. So uh, think how difficult that would be to, to write this without, you know, and to read this. But that's how it was. So uh, whoever decided eventually that spaces in words would be a good idea, that was a good idea. But back then, but this is part of how they can date it by its writing style and, uh, like I said, the, the material on which it was written. And it's cool, you can go to codexcyanaticus.org and you can look at it, and you can zoom in. Uh, it's, it's really neat that these things are available. Um, but if you want to take a peek at the oldest fragment that we have, at least that we know and we agree upon, uh, that scholars do for the New Testament, it's a piece of papyrus. Okay, and papyrus was the even older material that they used. It was, uh, well, it's not really paper, but it was made from the papyrus plants. And it, it is called the John Rylands Fragment. So it looks big on the screen. It's actually about the size of a credit card. And it contains a few lines here from John 18 on the front and the back, which is part of how we know that this was also part of a codex too. And like I said, it's so old that most of it you know, didn't survive, but they have this little bit. This was acquired in Egypt in the early, uh, well, in 1920. And so a lot of papyrus was found during that time. Uh, so they've been able to add different manuscripts and different things that they have. Now you may think, well, this is pretty small. What does this tell us? You know, before this time, uh, and before a lot of these other discoveries, it's not just this one. Some people said, some of the skeptics, that the Gospel of John, you know, talked about Jesus, it very clearly talks about Jesus Christ being God. And some people propose, well, we know that, you know, Jesus isn't really God. So that myth had to develop, and it probably took centuries for that to develop. And that was their, their hypothesis, and they would say that there's their scholarly opinion. Uh, but now there's been all these discoveries of a fragment of the Gospel of John dating from really just a few decades after John died, which means that there couldn't have been you know, this long mythological development of Jesus that took place over hundreds of years. You know, it brings us all really close. You know, and even though we just have this little credit card section here, if you think about it and you add in what would norm, what would be the words on either side of it, you can kind of reconstruct that and you can tell that, okay, there haven't been additions or subtractions there. Otherwise, the words would be shifted around and out of order. So it really is an amazing thing to have stuff like this. Uh, so com again, compared to so many other ancient documents, this goes way, way back. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was the former director and principal of the British Museum, 
stated uh, this quote. He says, The interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest existing evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, uh, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and general integrity of the books of the New Testament may, may be regarded as firmly established. So that's point one as we're thinking about this. We have this, all this manuscript evidence, you know, thousands of these documents. And like I said, that you could go and you could view so many of these online. And these are high-quality photos, too. I mean, they zoom in, so you can see, like, individual fibers. Because sometimes if translators are working on that, and it's kind of in bad shape, you know, it's hard enough sometimes to read handwriting of, uh, uh, you know, different people, you know, today. Uh, sometimes you have to zoom in and really take a look to try and tell what that was. So it, it's pretty amazing. Okay, so the next point. Again, I'm trying to prove my thesis here that what we have has now has been transmitted accurately. And the second big point is that... The text, and when I say the text, I mean, you know, the, the words and letters... Uh, the text was preserved through multiple lines of transmission. I'll explain what I mean as we get to that. Because I want to deal with this whole telephone game issue, this accusation that the Bible is like this garbled result of the uh, telephone game. So let me remind you of this. It may be a while since you played the telephone game. Uh, so when your kids, you play, how many of you have played the telephone game? And you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. So if you're playing the classic telephone game, you line up a bunch of people, the more the better, and one person uh, says some kind of sentence, and uh, they repeat it quietly to the next person so no one else can hear. Then that person repeats it to the next person, and by the time you get to the end of the last person, they say what it is, and it's, it's garbled and kind of funny, and you kind of laugh about it, and you see how messed up it got is somebody kind of mishears uh, and passes it along wrong. And they say, well, that's probably what the Bible's like. You know, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, some add to that it's a, it's a translation of a translation of a translation, which isn't true either. Uh, that'd be a whole other message, but we don't do... The, the Bibles that you have now are not a translation of a translation. They go back to the original Hebrew and the original Greek. But they say, well, it's a copy of a copy. And if you have errors, all these things creeping in, at the end, how do you know it's not a mess? How do you know it's not just, you know, garbled? How can you really trust it. So, glad you asked. So, although skeptics claim that what we have now is like the garbled result of the telephone game, it is faulty, a faulty comparison for several reasons that I'm going to give you. I would like to compare, I, I think it's a bad analogy to say it's like the, the telephone game. I think actually a better analogy of kind of what the transmission of the, the text of the copies is like is actually more like a tree. So I want to think about this. Is, is it more like the telephone game or a tree? And the difference with a tree, we're going to see is a tree has a, a trunk, and then it goes into different branches, and those branches branch out in other branches, and those branches branch out in other branches. So keep that in mind, because I think that'll make a little more sense in a little bit. But here's some reasons why the Bible is not like the telephone game. And the first is, the Bible is in writing. 
Okay, when you play the telephone game, and I'm dealing very specifically with telephone game because I've heard so many people use that as an analogy and to try and mess with people's faith or people that are looking for a reason not to believe. But it is one thing if you're playing that game to repeat something where you're, you're stuck. Did I hear it right? Did I not hear it right? But when something is in writing, you can keep looking at it. You can go back to it. You can check it. it it's more permanent uh, the, the letters are the, are the letters. If you're writing clearly, here's what it is. It's in writing and it's going to last. It's not like just words that are ethereal and just and disappear as soon after you say them. So for one, I mean, that's a big difference right there. Even if you played the telephone game uh, and you wrote it down and you passed it to the next person, your chances of it uh, getting garbled are going to be less than somebody just mishearing it. You know, assuming you, you write uh, neatly and, and all that, but these are things we're going to talk about. Second, there were multiple lines of transmission. So <clears throat> I want to explain what I'm talking about there. <clears throat> when um, the Bible was written, let's say the New Testament specifically, and so uh, Paul writes some letters and he sends it to, to different churches. And maybe he just sent one. Maybe he wrote several copies and, and sent them. Some would be intending to, to circulate around. Uh, but you would have the original letter or maybe, you know, a small number of copies. But then uh, churches would make copies for other Christian churches. So that another church could have a copy of Romans or Ephesians or whatever it is. And so these copies would be made. They'd be taken to different places. And it took time to do this. And it took time to travel and to get it there. Uh, but Real early on, they were spread out to the different churches. And then over time, you know, more copies would be made, and it would keep spreading out. And again, like a, it's more like a tree than just a telephone game where it's just like one-to-one-to-one-to-one. It's, it's branching out all over the place. And this is what I mean when I say there are multiple lines of uh, transmission. Because it would be way different, let's say we played the telephone game, and instead of just having one line of it, well, let's say we started off and we had five different lines. And I whispered the statement to the first, you know, five people and we played it, you know, that way. The chances are that when we get to the end, if people are trying to actually reproduce it correctly, uh, that there's more likelihood that it's not going to be garbled. If you were writing this down and you're passing it and it's, it's branching off into to different groups, that means that any uh, mistakes or errors are going to be contained in one branch of the tree. So they might get replicated, they might get passed down, but it's not going to be every branch. It's not going to be everywhere. So you have these, these multiple lines. It's, it's spread out. No one controls it, and therefore no one can, can just make a change to control or change all of Scripture. And even if someone accidentally does it, Again, it's just going to be on one probably small part of a, of a branch. So in the Christian world, uh, you have the ancient uh, uh, Roman world here where a lot of Christianity took root. And we're going to see next week there's uh, different, as they identify different uh, groups of these manuscripts, uh, they can put them as kind of different branches, you know, kind of of the tree. And they call them text types because there's certain ones that are kind of more alike each other than others. So there are the 
three kind of major ones, there had been a lot of Christians actually in Alexandria by Egypt. And so there's the Alexandrian type uh, in Greece where they continued to speak Greek for a long time. Constantine had moved the capital over there to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. And so, and that became the Byzantine Empire. So that's the Byzantine text type. And then in the West by Rome, uh, they eventually started, well, spoke Latin and started using Latin manuscripts instead, but there's a lot of copies over there too, and uh, that's called the Western text type. I'll come back to that more next time, and we'll see how that ties into the whole uh, question with translations later on. But you see things are kind of spreading out all over the place, and these different lines of transmission. So it'd be really hard to just change everything, even if something did slip into it. So we have those reasons. Another is that it's not like the telephone game because textual critics, these are the people that take a look at these manuscripts that we have and try to figure out, okay, what is the original? They don't just look at the latest one. If you're playing the telephone game, you're stuck with whatever answer the person at the end of the telephone game gives you. But if you could go back and ask everyone else along the way, or at least a lot of the people, you're going to get a lot better answer. And so we have to realize we don't just have the, the, the last version as if all the others were destroyed. We still have, we have all kinds of different manuscripts from different eras all over the place. And we can compare those. And so if there are any little typos, and most of these you know, variants are little typos. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But we can compare uh, versions against versions. Let me give you kind of an example of how this works um, when they kind of compare these things. Now, sometimes in these manuscripts, maybe there's not even a um, intention, maybe there's not an error or something, but maybe there's like a little hole in the manuscript or something like that. And we'd say, well, who knows what it says there because that little part wore out. Uh, or there's, you know, something wrong. But if you can compare several manuscripts together, it's kind of like this. Let's say you have something on the left side of the screen here where it says, uh, like a passage says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, first of all, see the word things here. Let's say, say the, uh, the pound sign there is you know, where it's, it's messed up or it's missing. Now, you probably still be able to figure out what it probably said. You could probably guess. There's only a few things that kind of make sense. But let's say you have another manuscript and there's a problem with this one too, uh, but basically, the, the problem is not in the same place. And then you have a few of these, and you look at them, and you can compare them, and you can realize, okay, none of these four examples actually says the word things, but obviously, looking at these and comparing it, you can know that's what the original was. So that's kind of an example of how this works when they compare these different manuscripts together and are able to determine usually with really good certainty, what the original actually said. So they compared all these different manuscripts uh, together. Uh, on the screen here, also, we have quotes from the early church fathers from each stage of its history. That's another thing, too. Uh, it's, it's been uh, pointed out that even if every ancient manuscript of the New Testament was uh, completely destroyed, that you could reassemble uh, basically the entire New Testament from all the quotations we have, all the quotes we have, citations, 
in writings of ancient church fathers. You know, in their works, uh, printed sermons, lectionaries, different things like that, not copies of scripture, uh, but, um, you know, they're different writings where they quote it sometimes at length. So there's all those as well. And they can also compare, and if they know that uh, Chrysostom wrote at, you know, this period of time, and he's saying uh, in his sermon and in his writings uh, a certain verse and commenting on it, we can know that's what he was looking at. It didn't get radically changed uh, because that's what he was that's what he was preaching on and again there's also translations into other languages uh, that we can compare to there's there's so much and so if you're going to make some kind of change in scripture you have to change all of that which is really unrealistic and then the last point that the people who copied the bible were skilled and motivated to get it right well let's be honest when you play the telephone game how many of you will admit to intentionally screwing it up? Okay. Wow, you guys. Okay, thank you for being honest. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. So <laughs> I'm sure we have more troublemakers. Uh, but that's the thing. You know, there's some people, they're garbling it on purpose because you want it to get garbled by the end because that's what makes it funny. Okay, if you do it and it's perfect every time, that's not fun. But the people that were copying Scripture they weren't playing a game like that. They were, instead, they were motivated, highly motivated to copy it correctly. I mean, they believed this was the word of God and they held this with, you know, great reverence. They were being very careful. And also, it's not just like us where we have a bunch of scratch paper and we're writing things down. Writing material was expensive. It took a long time to write these things down. You didn't want to screw up a whole manuscript and have to start all over, maybe waste a whole day or two's work. Uh, so you were wanting to be really careful for a lot of reasons. Now, in the early church, a lot of times it was untrained people, and they were persecuted and on the run. Uh, but later on, when Christianity became legal and then an official, you had a lot of trained scribes that were, uh, that were copying this and doing it with a lot of um, great effort and really, really working hard to get it right. You know, we haven't talked about the Jewish scriptures at all, uh, but that's something worth pointing out too. Uh, there's a group uh, called the Masorites, and basically around the year 8100, Jewish scholars started to work to have a standardized version of the Old Testament, and they chose from the best manuscripts that were available to them. They copied them with great care. And as the, uh, the Masorites then, who copied these for, uh, for hundreds of years into the Middle Ages, uh, they had different rules. If they made a mistake on one letter, usually they would, they would dispose of the whole thing. They would count the number of letters that they had uh, in, a, in a manuscript in each line, and they knew how many there were supposed to be, and they would check it to make sure. They would record what is supposed to be the middle letter of each line, each book, each section, so that it was accurate, so if something got slipped in. So they had lots of these different checks. Now, still, even with that, you know, there's things that can happen. But it was very, very, uh, you know, painstaking to do this. The Masoretes also added the vowel pointing to the Hebrew letters, which then was only consonants, actually. So most of the Hebrew texts that we have today actually only go back to about 900 years after Christ. So actually closer to our time than the, the New Testament documents. Uh, but because they were so carefully done that gives us a lot of assurance that they were uh, done accurately. 
In addition to that, there were discoveries that were made, uh, one that maybe you've probably heard of called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when those were discovered in 1947, they were discovered in this dry cave near Jericho. Uh, these kind of ancient, ancient scrolls uh, with many um, Hebrew uh, you know, manuscripts of, of what we call the Old Testament. One, a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, uh, dated to be from about the second century before Christ. And they matched it up and they show that it's practically a 100% match practically to the Masoretic text, confirming that they did such a good job copying this over the years. And it also means, you know, this other one is from before, you know, Christ was even born. So it's not, this isn't Christians changing it or monkeying with it. You know, these are the, the Jews, you know, copying this over and over. So <clears throat> the text was preserved through these multiple lines of transmission and again, this means that somebody couldn't just change it even if they wanted to because you, can't, you wouldn't be able to assemble all these and, and change all these different uh, copies of Scripture that have been scattered all over the place. Last point, almost all variant readings can be resolved. And what I mean by that is if you have discrepancies, you have some texts where maybe you know, there's a typo in one and not in another that's a variant, Almost all of these, they can figure out what the original is supposed to be. So even they talk about, oh, there's all these variants. Um, it shouldn't really worry us. And I want to give us some reasons to think about this. It is true that there are a great number of variants in the, the collection of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. But we need to realize that this is kind of what we would expect because variant or, you know, copying errors always happen in any type of copying. Uh, basically before, I'm not even going to say the printing press, because you can make printing press errors. There had been printing press errors. There was one entire Bible that was printed that they left out the word not, and it said, you shall commit adultery. <laughs> uh, so you can even make mistakes then. Really, if you wanted to say that um, it could only be the word of God if there can never be a typo in a copy of it, you would have to wait until the, the Xerox machine was invented, I think, in the 1940s uh, before you could have that assurance. So in any type of um, you know, copying, especially if it's something of, of length like this, I mean, I guess you could do a small section, but anything long. I don't know how many of you have tried copying something by hand, uh, but there are mistakes in it. There's, I kept trying to pull out mistakes in, in your handout. There's probably still mistakes in it. Uh, they're always made. So it's just a realistic thing. But also, remember, we have about 5,800 of these ancient manuscripts. So these mistakes are spread out over, you know, thousands of, of documents. So yeah, of course, if just we in this room decided to all sit down and we're going to copy um, the, the book of Matthew, I mean, how many mistakes would there be even if we tried really hard? Okay, we're not, you know, trained scribes, that's our thing, but we also have um, air conditioning. We also have indoor lighting. We also have all these, we have eyeglasses and things that they didn't have. You know, they had to work real hard to do this. So there was going to be uh, the, the occasional things uh, that would happen. And there's some examples of some of these things that would happen. Uh, a lot of them would be uh, maybe simple spelling errors, Maybe sometimes they would repeat a word if there was a word at the end of the line. Uh, 
they, it might, they might glance at it and accidentally repeat it or accidentally skip a line or a word because the endings look the same. Uh, sometimes there would be mistakes that, mistakes that would be made because someone would be uh, dictating it so a group of scribes could write it down and maybe some would mishear it and they'd write something. Sometimes what happened is that there were margin notes in the side that uh, got put in there and maybe originally the scribe wrote that as a little note or explainer and didn't intend for it to be scripture, but the next scribe gets it and thinks, oh, was this something uh, that was supposed to be added in? Maybe, you know, he missed a part and added this. And sometimes they'd be afraid of deleting something, so they would accidentally kind of add it in, thinking they were trying to preserve what was supposed to be there. Sometimes they would make a mistake because they would think that, well, this passage doesn't look right. This sounds tough. And they would think there's got to be a mistake that was made and they would change it to what they thought was right, but then they accidentally are introducing a mistake into it. Uh, So there's different ways that some of these things could happen. And we can talk about that a little more next time as well. However, most variants in our copies are meaningless or easy to figure out. So I want to give you some assurance on this. And we'll point this out that none of the small number of remaining uncertainties, if there are some little parts where scholars are like, well, we don't quite know, none of these affect any major doctrine at all. So, getting towards the end here, when we talk about these types of variants that there are, I want to give you some examples of this and categorize it. Because again, you have somebody like Bart Ehrman, 400,000 uh, you know, variants. Okay, yeah, but that's over 5,000 documents. But when you realize what these variants are, these typos, uh, it, that it's not as big a deal. So the first would be spelling and nonsense errors. And this by far is the largest category. In Greek, there's something called the movable new. Uh, it's basically a Greek N. And there's a lot of words have a silent N. And sometimes they would add it, sometimes they would drop it. But it's basically about the same as spelling the name Sarah with the H or without the H. Okay? It might not be how the name is officially spelled, but it doesn't really change anything. So actually, that's probably the most common of these variants or little typos that's in the Bible. And you wouldn't even notice it in your translation because it doesn't change anything. So that's called the movable new Another example of this uh, would be nonsense errors. Uh, there's one text that in 1 Thessalonians 2.4 reads, we were horses among you. And I don't know what happened if the you know, scribe was dozing off or what happened to him, but it, it obviously doesn't make sense. And also when it's like the only one you know, that says this, it, we know for, it's really easy to figure out that's not what the text of Scripture said. This is by far the largest category. Now there are others where there's um, what we call minor changes. And this would be uh, kind of the, the, the second largest category we have. And these minor changes uh, would include things like uh, synonyms or alterations that really you, you couldn't even tell in translation. Like some might say uh, the Barnabas instead of uh, Barnabas. And so you know, just kind of really minor things like that. Sometimes it was a matter of word order. In the Greek, a lot of times things could be said in more than one way. 
So for example, Jesus loves John, uh, it's been said it could be written 16 different ways in Greek without affecting the meaning. And so some scribe might accidentally kind of write it slightly a different way. It'd be about the equivalent of uh, if you were writing something, changing, you know, a contraction or uh, saying, you know, somebody's uh, car instead of the car of that. It's something, it's something really super minor. So we have those type of things. Now, the third largest category, and again, these are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Most of them don't even matter at all. And you say these first ones, like, who cares? These would be meaningful changes that are not viable. And again, technical terms. These means it would change something in Scripture, but when the scholars look at that, they say there's no way that this is what the original text actually said. So it's not plausible that this could be, it's not a contender for it being the actual thing that was in Scripture. Um, so in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, almost every manuscript that we have has the phrase, the gospel of God. Uh, but one late medieval manuscript has the gospel of Christ. And even that, that's not like a major change in meaning. You could say it, it's something, is a little bit different. Uh, but the thing is, if you have only one manuscript out of 5,800, and it's from like way into the Middle Ages, you can be pretty sure that that's not the original, that that one is something that the, the scribe goofed up for some reason. And so you say, well, okay, it's a very but big deal. We know that's not the original one. We can figure out what the original actually is. Now you have some. This is the smallest category. These would be ones that are meaningful and viable. So it could change the meaning at least to some degree. And there's a possibility that either this version or that version is actually the original. And so we don't 100% know, but this is a very, very small number. So this would change the meaning of the text to at least some degree. But even this, it's what we say, the meaning of it, it's, it's like hardly anything usually important at all. So Romans 5.1 has, we have peace versus let us have peace. Okay, that would change the meaning there. Uh, but when you look at the whole book of Romans, you would say, well, it doesn't, it's not a huge difference, you know, in our life because we know from other places, hey, we do have peace. We can have peace through Jesus. But here's the thing. These comprise less than 1% of all these variants, all these variations. So you have this huge number, but it's only like less than, less than 1% that there's any uncertainty about and it actually has any type of meaningful change. But here's the big deal. If you say the amount that actually even come close to changing a major doctrine, it's zero. It's completely zero. That all of these different things, all the little different typos, anything that is kind of crept in, uh, there's nothing that changes that Christ is God. There's nothing that changes that he, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Uh, or even any other even uh, doctrines even, even close to that. We can have faith in knowing this. The little typos are basically typos. And by comparing manuscript to manuscript, we can, um, they can reassemble with great, great certainty what the original actually was. So, 
to kind of summarize, the text of the Bible has been accurately transmitted to us. As we said, we have about 5,800 handwritten copies of the Greek New Testament, far more than any other ancient manuscript. The time gap between the original writing and the earliest existing copies far less than any other ancient manuscript. And then, to summarize here at the end, the texts were carefully copied. And there were multiple lines of transmission ensuring that no one could, that, uh, well, just, no one person or group could have changed the text. The small number of variations can be eliminated by comparing copies with each other. And I think that last point is really important. And as I think about this, it makes me just stand in awe of like, the brilliance of God. Because at first, we might think, well, it'd be great if we had just the original somewhere. That somewhere there was the, the original, the one copy that we could refer back to and, uh, and kind of look at. And there are, um, well, something that happened with the Muslims. There was a Muslim scholar named Uthman, and he, at one point, there were various versions of the Quran, and so he wanted, he didn't want that to happen. Some were, you know, changing. So he had all the other ones basically collected and destroyed, and he kept like a master copy uh, that he had, and all the other ones were done away with. Now, at that point, there are no variations, but it's also because they destroyed all the other ones. Uh, so we wouldn't want something like that. But also think about it. If God uh, was giving us his word in writing, which is so much better than just having it spoken where it's, it's in and out. I mean, writing, it's, you can look at it together. You can, it's not just some feeling. We can examine it. We can study it together. It remains there. But basically, there's three ways that God could have done it. He could have, I guess, theoretically, not allowed typos at all. That would mean if you go to copy scripture and you even try to, that somehow supernaturally your hand just, it can't happen. Okay, I guess theoretically God could have done that, uh, but that's, that's not what he did, okay? And it maybe in some ways it, it makes sense why he didn't do it that way. Another version would be to keep the originals. And again, we think, well, that would be pretty great, but you know what happened? When we think about this, we realize this is what would happen. If you had the originals somewhere, you would, that would mean that some person or some group would have complete authority over these originals, And I think we could have less assurance that what we have now in our Bible is the real deal if it was that way because people are corrupt. And there's been corrupt religion, corrupt churches, all kinds of things, and political leaders. And if somebody had the uh, sole control over the Scripture, then we couldn't trust it because then somebody could have made those changes. Or they keep it in some, you know, we have it, you can't see it, I'll tell you what it says. And you'd be at their mercy that they're telling you correctly. So that's another thing. Or God could do the way that historically he did, which in one sense was a little bit more messy, but actually gives us better results. That God preserved the original message through many copies. And yeah, we have to compare copies to copies sometimes to weed out the typos. But think how brilliant this is. It means that no one was ever in control of all of the the copies of the New Testament. That means that even if Constantine had wanted to make a bunch of changes, it wouldn't have worked because they were spread out all over the place. They were decentralized. And so I look at this, and not only does it fill me with confidence in the word of God, but it makes me marvel at his wisdom and his providence in how he preserved God's word for us. 
I hope this has been helpful, and I hope that uh, this helps you to have more confidence in God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word. Uh, We thank you that you have uh, preserved your message for us, and you have preserved the words of Scripture, and that none have been lost, Lord God. And that we thank you for those that have compared copies to copies to help weed out any little typos or places where a manuscript has been frayed. And so when we read our Bible, that we know with great certainty that what we are reading uh, is a replication of what you have originally inspired to be written. And so let us not have doubts. Let us not listen to the voice of Satan saying, did God really say? But let us trust and believe your word. Let us stand under it. Let us hear you and let us adore you. And may we adore Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. His name we pray. Amen.